Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Kenya Hunt, Editor-in-Chief of LUK. Kenya's career spans working for some of the most influential women's titles on both sides of the Atlantic, from her postgraduate days as an assistant editor at the seminal magazine Jane, to her time as deputy editor of Grazia UK and LUK. She has written for some of the most prestigious publications in the world, including The Washington Post, The Guardian, Essence, Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, Refinery29, and The Evening Standard, amongst other publications. Kenya has also appeared on BBC Women's Hour and Sky News. As the founder of Room Mentoring, she advocates for greater diversity within the fashion industry by providing a supportive network for some of the many talented aspiring designers, journalists and image makers of colour London has to offer. In 2021, Kenya was recognised by the British Fashion Council for her work and awarded a Global Leader of Change Award. Kenya, hello and welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. It's great to see you. So today, I mean, we are going to be talking a bit about luxury, but I just wanted to start by asking about you and kind of how you fit in the world of fashion and how you got to being at the helm of a global fashion magazine. Um, it's, you know, I, I guess I'd say like my gateway into fashion was my mother who loved it, you know, uh, growing up. And so it was the magazines that she kept on her coffee table and they really ranged from Elle, Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, and then, you know, American titles like Time and Newsweek. And, uh, and then titles like Ebony and Essence, which were, um, you know, t- titles owned by, you know, black publishers at targeting the black community. That said, I grew up reading these and like loving them, uh, you know, just being fascinated by the shoots that I saw on the pages. And so that I think that kind of really began, a, a, that's what sparked an interest really quite early on. And then, you know, as you grow up, your aspirations change and evolve as mine did, but I kept, it, I kept sort of returning to this love of fashion. And so then after school, I just kind of started that pathway um, into sort of journalism, you know, with my first magazine job in New York. And I worked my way up from there and eventually made my way over to London in 2008. And um, so I feel like I've had quite like a, you know, a long linear path within women's media and fashion media. And my history with Aldean in 2015, when Lorraine Candy hired me, and um, that, that's, I'd already, I, you know, it was a dream job because I had always loved the brand globally. And so to be, you know, the opportunity to work with Al here in the UK was, a, you know, a dream job come true. And then from there, I just kind of, uh, you know, developed from there. And then I left and to be able to come back, I left in 2019 to go to Grazia and to be able to come back here. Uh, this year's editor in chief has been, you know, an absolute joy and a privilege. I grew up in Virginia. I was born in Germany, raised in Virginia, and then moved to New York uh, after school, like so many people do. And then I moved to London in 2008. So I feel like a Londoner at this point because I've been here a long time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm raising two British boys. My sons are British. You're a global entity, I guess. <laughs> it's, you know, I, um, yeah, I sometimes like to say I'm a citizen of the world. But the, the thing that... Um, I, I do value is my experience having started my career in New York publishing, but having really come of age here in the UK, because I really have a very clear understanding of the um, the value and the importance of cultural nuance and also how different 
every market is from like, you know, region to region, city to city, country to country. I think it's so hugely important to respect the qualities and the nuance of like what makes a city, what makes a country, what it is. So for for me, I think, you know, as, as a journalist in particular, it's been fascinating to start my career in one place and then really feel like I've come of age in another because there's that that is that interesting sort of experience of cultural difference and nuance. Looking at the work you're doing with Room and um, L is you know also all about empowering women and you're a black woman as an editor in chief of a magazine. How does that feel? It feel you know today I have to say I had like one of those days where I started the day off feeling really quite tired and then I had a pinch me moment because I you know it's it's a day where you know I started it out. Um, meetings, planning, you know, cover star meetings to plan our upcoming issue. And then I have a podcast report, you know, recording. And then I am heading to a film premiere uh, for a film that, you know, is featured on our cover of our November issue, which is the the, the, the cast of Black Panther, uh, which is a film that I touched on in my book. And so I, I had a moment, you know, uh, during my ride into the, in, um, into work where I was just thinking, wow, this is like exactly what I've been working towards, like, you know, I have professionally, like, this is a moment where I have to stop and recognize that I have like what I've been wanting. And so in a way it, it is quite thrilling in a way, and it does feel like a real privilege and one that I don't take lightly. And so, um, you know, it's just been great to be in a position to also like commission talents that I love, like, you know, photographers and writers and, um, image makers, people I've long admired, but also a lot of the younger emerging talents who I've encountered via room, the work that I'm doing and thinking, oh, it'd be so nice to be in a position to sort of do, you know, X or Y project with this person. It's nice to be in, in a position to be able to do that and give these people opportunities as well. I want to talk a little bit about you and fashion. How do you think fashion has changed, you know, just picking up on what you've said around cu cultural diversity and, you know, giving a voice to people who might not always have had those voices. How do you think fashion has changed over the past, you know, probably three years before the pandemic and then two years since the pandemic? Um, I think it's changed considerably. The change started long before that. Like, I think we were seeing gradual change that's taken place across decades, but particularly in the past decade, I think because of the organized efforts of, you know, a range of individuals who in the fashion industry across, you know, several cities. But pre-pandemic, I mean, I think the pandemic and, and more importantly, the social justice movement that really gained steam after the very tragic murder of George Floyd accelerated a lot of this change and progress that we saw happening. And I think now we're just in a place where people are really kind of taking a step back to reassess how much change really has happened and where do we want to go from there. For instance, I think the fact that I'm in the position that I am in is like a sign of how much has changed in the industry. Whereas when I was coming up as an assistant, you know, there really was that feeling that there could only ever be like one or two people of color at any title, for instance, it was kind of unsaid. And the idea of um, there being a black editor in chief of one of these, you know, um, powerful legacy brands, like it's just, it, it wasn't, it, it just wasn't, um, we didn't have anyone like, it, you know, any examples, you know, we hadn't, it was something we hadn't seen. And so I think, you know, to be a part of, you know, a wave of um, change, because now, you know, you can look across the spectrum, this 
the landscape of publishing and see so many incredible editors who come from so many different backgrounds, like racial backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, ages, you know, what Edward and Ingvall has done in Vogue, so incredible and so historic. You know, you see, you look at The Cut and New York Magazine, you have Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, you have Ib Kamara at Dazed. I, you know, there, it's just been incredible to see the wave of talent that's really come through and also to see how each person in their individual position has also been able to help uh, develop, you know, help uh, this this sense of progress, you know, like this sense of storytelling and changing the norm and the culture within fashion so that we can have, um, you know, an industry that feels more reflect- reflective of the world that we live in. Well, what do you think the change has been in terms of how we dress, for example, and how you present fashion in visually in the magazine, online, or as you dress as, you know, as an editor? Well, I mean, this is my favorite thing to discuss, you know, as a as a journalist, as a writer, first and foremost, and, and as an editor, because fashion is, you know, it's, that is what it does. It changes, you know, like in historically, there's the, you know, the seasons and the trends come and go. But I think, you know, the pandemic has done something really quite interesting, because on the one hand, I think it's accelerated the pace of change. But on the other hand, I think it's really heightened this appetite and this thirst for things that last and, and, and things that feel quite timeless. And so it is really quite, it's a fascinating time to be documenting uh, the way that we dress because we were all, you know, in this period of lockdown where we were wearing things that we were swaddling ourselves and um, loungewear and, you know, volume and we, we saw the rise of like the luxury blanket, you know, people had a some people had a little extra money to spend and they were spending it on food and like luxe cashmere throws and blankets and track suits and really comfortable slippers. And that became the height of luxury. And then we, you know, the world reopened and then all of a sudden there was this real sort of desire. And I, I, I say this from a personal level as well, to sort of like let the skin breathe, let the legs out, let the arms out, wear things that really expose the body or cling to the body and like really get get reconnected with that side of ourselves that we lost as we were also like reconnecting with our social lives and reuniting with people and just enjoying the party, like the fun of the party, which we hadn't experienced before in a few years anyway. Um, and so that was really fascinating to watch. And we saw this return of sex on the runway. And so the pendulum had really swung in a completely different direction. And then out of that came the rise of Y2K, which felt like surely this will just be like this really fleeting moment. But then, you know, we were at the spring, summer 23 shows and we all saw that it, it actually has legs. It's not going away anywhere anytime soon. So these are all things we've been actively talking about. And then there's that feeling of, you know, the chaos that's unfolding outside and what's happening with the economy and the cost of living crisis. And does it feel right to, you know, um, cover yourself in logos and like this idea of like really flamboyant displays of like wealth? Does it feel right? Like, you know, will we see a return to quieter dressing? Because right now things, you know, coming out of the pandemic, things are so loud and proud and flamboyant and fun and out there and taking up space. And so there's, these are all like questions that we've been asking ourselves here at Al and talking about quite a bit, even as we ourselves try to figure out our own wardrobes. Because even when I started here at Al about seven months ago now, we were in that period where the reopening still felt quite fresh and 
no one, we were like, we don't know what to wear anymore. Like we've got all these, all of a sudden we've got work travel. I have a season of cruise shows and cruise travel ahead. Like, I don't know what to wear. I don't know how to dress for it anymore. And everyone was saying the same thing. So it's, it's, we've kind we're kind of all like, you know, navigating this, this new period together as we figure out all these new dress codes, um, to match the, the, you know, this new normal that we're settling into. Yeah. It's really complex now. I mean, much more than it's ever been, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's really complex and really fractured and exactly like even workwear, like that age old concept of workwear and like those workwear stories that we would, that women's magazines would give you and power dressing. These were ideas that were in flux anyway, due to things like Silicon Valley and digital disruption and how like, you know, and the casualization of our wardrobes. But then now in the age of hybrid working, working from home, working from the office, it's added an extra layer of complexity to it. So it's really fascinating. But on the other hand, I think it's quite thrilling because there's so many possibilities. In a way, it's almost like what you make of it. Like the rules aren't as stringent as they were before. Yeah, I'm just looking at I'm looking at what I'm wearing now, and I'm looking at what you're wearing. I'm at home. I'm in a t-shirt and a plaid, and you really smartly dressed with leather trim. It's, but I had like you know, it's been one of those days. Like I have a movie premiere later. I had like a reception earlier. I had to do like a talk. like. There's all sorts of different things happening with the workday anyway. So it is. It does present really like interesting conundrums trying to get dressed as an editor from day to day as well yeah i have i must say i have been following you on instagram and seeing your five shots and this is what i'm going to be wearing and i might be wearing it again um, over the next you know few days um but i i wanted to ask you i wanted to pick up on a, a few things that you've been talking about i mean i was out to dinner the other night and loads of the women were in sequence and there's a lot of it around yeah and then at the same time you think about what you've just said is that you know we're in a a moment of flux that nobody, you know, today the interest rates went up again, uh, mortgages, power, a global war, issues around racial and other equality, all these things going on in the world. And then with us talking about luxury, I mean, how does this all fit together? You know, what is the right thing to do? I don't have the answer to that question, but I feel like it's, um, it's something that I think I think these conversations are important to have and to keep talking about. I was at a um, reception at the V&A earlier and, you know, there was the Africa fashion exhibition that's happening up there. And I was with a small group of very well-dressed people and we were all asking each other who we were wearing. Um, and then the conversation turned to the, the bleak atmosphere right now. And, you know, we were just sharing experiences and everyone kept talking about how bleak things feel. And then the conversation turned to, you know, like mental health and, I think no matter where you sort of sit on the economic spectrum, I think you're feeling it, you know, in terms of this, um, the climate right now. So whether or not, you know, a trip to the grocery store is triggering because of the hike in prices, or if you're part of that 1%, no matter what, like the, it's in the air, like it's a really uncertain destabilizing really strange time and it has felt like that for quite some time and it seemed to just keep increasing in terms of the weight of it and yet i think um you know i think people have a sense of fatigue there but then also i think if people just have a real desire to try to seek out the things that give them joy which might explain this um you know because i was talking to some retailers to try to get their view of what's ahead like will we see the pendulum swing to a place where People feel like we need to abandon the sequence and the feathers and just dress in a much more discreet manner. 
And there seems to be this feeling that actually not, um, or at least, you know, among the retailers I spoke to that, you know, that they haven't seen a, a decrease in appetite among their uh, consumers because there's still that thirst for things that make you feel good. Um, and I, so maybe there's that element of like the world is ending, so we might as well wear the dress anyway. Like why save the best for last? Like wear it now. Um, so I don't know. I think it's a really, it, everything is still, it's unfolding so quickly. I think only time will tell really. But on a personal level, I, I just try to wear what makes me feel good that day as I wake up, my mood shifts <laughs> from day to day. And, um, and yeah, so I, I'm of the mind that, you know, wear the best, say, I mean, don't save the best, like just wear it, you know, you can't take it with you, life's too short. Yeah, and I think there's definitely a generational thing. And it doesn't matter, just wear it. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. A friend of mine is a CEO of quite a big retail company, and there was she was saying the same thing, that they've got more sequins in the stores now, and people are buying them. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, people want to enjoy themselves. I mean, there's so much doom and gloom, but then there's that balance between should I, shouldn't I? Right. I think there's a... There is a strange disconnect happening right now. And it was quite surreal. You know, I think every show season, there's, you know, shows don't happen in a bubble. There's always like the news unfolding in the background. And, you know, having gone and covered shows for quite some time now through, you know, all sorts of like, you know, interesting moments um, in the news cycle, it, you know, it, was, it felt like quite a surreal season. I mean, I remember being there when COVID started to unfold. And then we all returned to London and then we went into lockdown like two weeks later. And this past show season, it felt, you know, surreal for different reasons um, because of what was happening with our government here and watching all of that unfold. So I think, you know, fashion doesn't exist in a bubble. And I think there's always that conversation around, you know, what role does fashion play during time, during periods of um, destabilization and unrest. And so... But ultimately, I think it does have the power to sort of make us feel good. I mean, it's a thing that, you know, we wear it on our bodies, you know, it's um, so I do think that on a basic level, it should make you feel good. There's this absolute drive to make us all much more aware of the environment and the environmental impact we have by consuming, you know, huge amounts of stuff. At the same time, we're being encouraged to buy less because you can't buy lots, buy nothing, keep what you've got. <laughs> you know, you can't do everything. So how, you know, how, how do you manage it as somebody who is a showcase for fashion? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, to borrow the term you used earlier, I mean, it's, it can be confusing trying to figure out how to um, engage with sustainability. Like it can be, you know, it can be an interesting thing to, to because, on the one hand, like the climate crisis, which is all is something we're all experiencing. Like this autumn has been like insanely warm. Like everyone's talking about it. Um, and yet, I mean, the problem is so much bigger than the individual. You know, a lot of that comes down to things like policy, while at the same time, we all have a part to play in this. So, and then for us as a title like Al, you know, we're an ecosystem where we celebrate fashion. But I think there's the, the responsibility of really doing it in a um, responsible and mindful way and in a way that really reflects the conversations that we're having and the moment in the era, which I think any great you know, title should do. It should really speak to the moment. And for us, 
at Elle, I've been really inspired by the women on the team and some of our contributing editors. So Alice Wignall, who's our executive editor, who I worked with during my previous time at Elle. So I came back and, you know, just banal chit chat. I'm complimenting her on what she's wearing. And she's like, yeah, oh, I got it from eBay. Next day, I compliment her on another thing. It's from eBay. So then I find out that basically roughly 80% of her wardrobe, she buys secondhand. Because she says that, you know, as a lover of luxury fashion, there's really no need for her to buy anything new anymore. You can find it all. Like there's so much stuff out there that she, she can easily find everything that she would need and want secondhand. And so she is someone who's really living out this idea of um, having, you know, wearing a wardrobe that's, you know, secondhand. The bulk of the, the, the clothing she buys is it has been worn before. Um, and then we have Aja Barber, who's a contributing editor, who is a real kind of like, you know, environmental warrior. Like she really like lives it out. Um, she really lives her values. And for her, she swaps her wardrobe with her friends. And so it's really about, um, you know, keeping things in circular, keeping things in circularity through that act of, you know, making sure that the pieces that she wants to offload from her wardrobe, she finds a good home for them, or rather than turning to a department store first to get that new winter coat, she like shops her friend's closets. And I think that's a really interesting um, idea. While at the same time, you know, you know, I've taken, I've, you know, I've taken inspiration from both of them and started, you know, regarding my own wardrobes in different ways. So as you mentioned, you know, I was posting on Instagram about how much rewearing I was doing during the show season. I was really enjoying like pulling things out of from the back of my wardrobe and wearing them and then wearing them again and then wearing them again, which I guess like even like five years ago, that would have been like, that was not the done thing. Like you didn't really want to recycle your wardrobes too much because I, I don't know why. I just think it was, I, I don't know. To me, I think it's just a normal way to wear clothes. You just repeat it and you just wear the things that you love again and again. So I think for us at Al, you know, we obviously celebrate fashion. We have fashion shoots. We have fashion pages where we show you merchandise that we love, you know, coats, shoes, bags, and all those things. Um, things that you can go and buy new. I mean, I think we're an ecosystem that really celebrates fashion, but I think it's really important for us to really have these conversations that... Um, uh, challenge our readers to think about the ways that they build their wardrobes differently and the ways that they maintain them in a way that's mindful and conscious of the the toll that our actions are taking on the planet, uh, which is why, so in this issue that we've got out on newsstands now, we have Greta uh, Turnberg in the issue, who is, um, you know, she, she she's probably, you know, the most famous environmentalist out there one who's very sort of careful and um, in choosing what she wears and what she'll be photographed in. Um, but, I, you know, I think it's important to give space to women like Greta. We had the um, climate activist, uh, Shia Bastida, in the September issue. Aja Barber is one of our contributing editors who's quite a well-known um, environmentalist. So I think it's important to give space to these conversations and also to all to make sure that we're not looking at fashion in a bubble on our pages, that we're also like encouraging readers to be mindful of how they consume fashion, even on the most banal market pages, you know, in which we were giving you like a shopping edit for edit brands example. People have to make their own decisions. And, you know, if 
if you're giving those people a voice. You know, that's part of the journey um, that you take is you make your decisions and you read what you read and then you might go and buy your um, £10,000 dress set wherever you might buy it or you might buy your nine ninety nine dress somewhere else. Yeah, and if you buy that nine ninety nine dress, hopefully you'll take care of it and hold on to it for quite some time and keep wearing it rather than just discarding it and vice versa with the, you know, the very, very expensive luxury dress. Or you could buy it secondhand. You know, like we really want to encourage our readers to consider all the options, all the ways that you can build a wardrobe and most importantly to just um, you know, really consider longevity as a part of these purchases. So I have a question. When did secondhand become pre-loved? I know, right? Talk about rebranding. I think so many of these discussions, it's all about, you know, it's so interesting as well. You know, when you really think about the language of um, all of these conversations, how the, it was, um, what was it called? It was climate change. Then, um, you know, it became the climate crisis, which I understand because, you know, there's that real sense of urgency. But then, yeah, uh, secondhand became pre-loved. And there, I, there's so many different ways of um, phrasing it. But actually, I welcome it because, you know, as editors, when we run features about this, there's so many, only so many times that you can say vintage or secondhand in a piece. So I welcome the more synonyms, the better, in my view. You, you, you mentioned luxury, and I wanted to get your take on. So, I mean, obviously, the visuals and the narrative is, is critical to, to what you do. How do you communicate luxury through your pages? And is it important? Yes. I mean, I think luxury is um, important, but also I think it's important to really consider how we define luxury because I don't think luxury is, I think luxury is more than a designer label or a logo. You know, I think it's a state of mind. I think it's, you know, what goes into the making of something. I think it's the craftsmanship behind it, the story behind it. Um, You know, I think there's so many sort of layers and levels to it. And that can change as well, according to the moment. I mean, we, during the lockdown period, the height of luxury was a walk outside when we were all kind of, you know, stuck indoors. I mean, I think that what we consider to be luxury, you know, luxury really changes and and evolves as well based on our lived experience. But I, I, you know, at Elle, I think, you know, we are ultimately a luxury fashion title. I mean, that's at the core of what we do. But I think there's so many different ways to consider luxury. So I think what I find thrilling is really exploring the the vast spectrum of what luxury means and where it can come from as well. You know, I think there's always, there's that age old thinking that luxury comes from ateliers in Paris or, you know, workshops in Milan, but also, you know, luxury comes from various corners of Africa. It can come from Scandinavia it can come from, you know, um, at some programmers, the work that a programmer is doing in the virtual space. You know, I think there's so many different interesting, you know, conversations that are taking place around luxury and what it means. That it's, a, you know, it's a really fascinating time as well to be a luxury fashion title. And interestingly, um, a friend of mine's just written a book called Africa and Fashion, and he's looking at colonization and decolonization and the impact of that on on luxury in Africa. Oh, that sounds very fascinating. I'd like to read that. Oh, I'll get I'll get you a copy. It's quite amazing because there's, there's this completely different narrative. You know, you said we believe or we led to believe that luxury comes out of ateliers in Paris or, you know, or Milan. 
but in actual fact, you know, you go back a long, long way and, you know, African fashion brings something very different um, to this idea of luxury. The issue of diversity in luxury is one that I'm exploring and have been exploring for a long time because it's not there. And I was just wondering what you thought. It's, it's emerging, but it's not as prominent as it should be. I think we're seeing change and progress, you know, um, happen in, in uh, little spurts. But I think it definitely, you know, it's still, it's not nearly what it should be. And um, I think, you know, the, the higher up the food chain you go, and when you really look at the power structures behind the scenes, you know, they are still, by and large, very homogeneous. I went to a conference, a luxury conference, and it was full of white middle-aged men. And I was saying to the colleague I was with, I was saying, but where's everybody else? Uh, it yeah. felt really odd. It's a, it's challenging. It is challenging because I think, you know, the, you know, that feeling of progress when it comes to diversity and inclusion only kind of takes you up to a certain point and it does ultimately, oftentimes it feels very surface. But then, yeah, there have been, you know, in my own experience many times when I've gone to dinners or trips or um, certain shows where I very much am still only either the only black face in the room or the only one of two or the only, uh, you know, there are only one or two people of color, like non-white people and that sort of thing. So it is, you know, still uh, very homogeneous. And I'm not even, I'm just talking about race here. I'm not even talking about disability. And then don't even get me started on the subject of size <laughs> in terms of, you know, luxury fashion when it comes to um, creating clothing for women of a range of, you know, shapes and sizes. You mentioned earlier around this idea of craftsmanship and atelier and those being some qualities that you can use to define luxury. How do you think technology is impacting on how we see luxury? So it could be through dissemination of a, of a story or an idea or the manufacture. Yeah, I think it's um, impacting fashion on every possible level, like the creation of it, the way it's sold, the supply chain, like all of it. I mean, at L, most recently, we've been looking a lot at this, the idea of virtual fashion, um, I think for me in particular, it's because I have a 10 year old who plays games like Roblox. And I, I, you know, that's where he first learned about Gucci and Balenciaga through all of these sort of activations that they've had on these gaming platforms. And for me, it's been really fascinating to see he and his classmates dress their little avatars up in these. So I feel like that's the generation where we, where, you know, that, that idea of virtual clothing is really going to become the norm. And so we've been really quite interested in that here at L, like what that looks like um, and who, who are the women really who are kind of like, you know, major players in that space and in driving that conversation. So oftentimes a lot of that stuff tends to be more led by men. Um, and I think, so I, th I, I find that to be quite interesting. I think these conversations can often be polarizing within fashion. For instance, there was the metaverse fashion week and everyone was really keen to sort of get involved. But then at the same time, I think a lot of um, people were still trying to make sense of it. Like, what is it? And is, is this really a space we want to be in? So I think it's, um, I think, you know, there's always that kind of, uh, there's always a certain kind of um, tension sometimes between this idea of the physical and the handmade 
versus um, the virtual when I don't always think there needs to be that kind of tension there. It doesn't necessarily have to be this binary. I think they can all coexist and all have their own, you know, unique value and contribution. Yeah, it's interesting that this idea of avatars and being within a digital world and not physically touching the the article or the item um, where fashion is so tactile, you want to feel the fabric and kind of wrap yourself in cashmere or whatever it might be. But then when you, you know, you, you might have a headset on or you might be using your phone, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, you know, all these things have a very different, a very different experience that they offer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, um, I don't think it has to be a zero sum game where one pushes out the other ultimately. And I think, you know, I say this working for like a legacy women's media brand, you know, as someone who's like a lover of like words on a printed page, while at the same time, I love the possibilities that all of our digital touch points allow for us. And I think it's very much the same within fashion. I mean, to me, nothing compares to the, the, the beauty and comfort of a, a, like a really luxurious, like great cashmere sweater. Well, at the same time, that doesn't take away from my fascination with, you know, the virtual clothing and the possibilities of that. And you have some amazing designers. I mean, even like Iris Van Herpen, who's been operating in that space for a long time, doing wonderful things with actual physical clothing and, you know, digitized fashion. And so I think there's ways that they can coexist and it doesn't have to necessarily be this either or this kind of like, you know, tension, you know, a rivalry between the two worlds and spaces. I mean, I, I, I understand though that sense of like, um, you know, those sort of existential conversations around things like the metaverse, um, you know, like web three and like living in a different sort of reality and what that could mean. And also the mental health aspect. Um, but I think it's, you know, I, I like to, you know, I, you know, we're naturally very curious and like, we're in the business of having these dis- discussions and, and exploring, um, all of fashion, you know, the, the bits that feel, you know, completely new and innovative and the bits that are like age old and time worn and, um, and much loved at the same time. I co-invented a 3d printed textile that you can, you know, you can mold to anybody's body, any shape, you can make it bigger or smaller. And the response to that, it was, oh, but what do you do with it? It, You know, it's, it's, it's challenging when you, uh, you know, I've been using the word challenging quite a lot today. But, you you know, when you're trying to get people to become much more comfortable with emerging technologies and materials and how they might uh, manifest themselves in, in, you know, in the real world or in the digital world, but it's a great place to be. It is a great place to be. I mean, I think it's also in human nature, though, to just naturally be quite wary of emerging technologies. I mean, like, you know, the history and the history books have taught us that that is always the way, you you know, you're met with a new emerging technology and, you know, people can be slow to embrace it sometimes. But I think that, um, you know, I I think it just presents some really interesting um, possibilities and discussions uh, for us to be had at all. I wanted to quickly um, touch on your book, your essays on black womenhood, because I saw somewhere you were quoted as being a bad bitch uh, (laughs) in an interview. And um, I I then looked that up and it says that um, you're totally mentally gifted and usually fine as hell. That was, I think, um, yeah, so that was, I was quoting, um, yeah, so that, that basically was an essay in which I was sort of 
um, well, basically commenting on this idea of black exceptionalism and how it impacts black women. But there was a skit that I saw on um, a black lady sketch show, which I loved in which it had, you know, like these, uh, you know, uh, self-proclaimed bad bitches. They were all kind of in like a, a, a sort of like therapy group. And they were just talking about like the joys the trials and tribulations of being a, a bad bitch and having to sort of be firing on, on all cylinders all the time. And it was really actually was so funny. It just, it never, it's, I don't think it'll ever leave me actually, because it was so resonant. <laughs> I was interested in, in the essays and your book and the connection with fashion. It, it's an interesting thing because in terms of my experience as a black woman, I was seeing um, fashion evolve in which we were, we were seeing black women become much more visible than we had in decades. I mean, I think you look back to like the seventies, for instance, you know, there was a period of, um, in which, you know, diversity was really celebrated within the fashion industry. And you had designers like Yves Saint Laurent who really championed it. And you saw the rise of like, you know, a wave of incredible black models. And then you'd see waves of it again, you know, in the eighties and the nineties, and I often talk about Beth Ann Hardison, who is a woman who was at the heart of it. She was a model in the 70s. She was a model agent in the 80s onwards. And she did so much incredible work advocating for greater um, representation and inclusion within the world of fashion. And so for me, you know, by the time I came along, it was just really interesting because I started out in fashion at a time of incredible homogeneity, where it was really the um, Eastern European model who was the... Um, the ideal uh, in terms of like, that was the look that was dominating the catwalks. And then we began to sort of see the change unfold from there. Um, Cause that kind of sparked some outcry and some discussion about the dearth of diversity on the catwalks and also within the industry as a whole. And so in terms of my book, you know, I was really commenting on this rise in prominence of black women and uh, historically white spaces, and yet that disconnect from, uh, in, in terms of the experience. So you're, you know, you might be the first, you know, achieving this incredible sort of accomplishment in your career in one area of your life, but then at the same time experiencing these uh, demoralizing and often dehumanizing sort of experiences and degradations on a day-to-day -day level. Um, so that I, I really kind of wanted to reflect on that um, and so I, 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 I had my own lived experience and then I was also ex observing the experiences of women in my social network and then also women in the public sphere often refer to the, um, experience of Amanda Gorman who had, you know, delivered this wonderful, um, you know, she wrote a poem for the presidential inauguration when Biden was inaugurated. It was this incredible historic moment. And then I think a few weeks later she was racially profiled. Um, by a security officer who didn't believe that she was she was heading home and that he didn't believe that she should that she belonged there. And so I thought that was a classic example, like someone who's just had this incredible high um, and yet is experiencing this like crushing discrimination. And I you know, I, I could relate to that so many other women that I know could relate to that. So I really wanted to sort of look reflect on this experience of blackness and womanhood now, through my own particular experiences of it and through other women around me. And as it relates to fashion, I think, you know, fashion is one of those spaces in which we've seen black women become incredibly visible as models. You know, I think you can definitely see the, 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 um, 
the change there in terms of like, you know, how many black women are present and uh, runway shows, but also campaigns, magazine covers. I mean, I remember doing so many interviews um, three years ago, I believe it was when the, the September issues had more black women fronting the, the magazines than ever before. And it made headlines and it became this like global talking point. Um, so, you know, I think fashion is one area. It's like one of many examples in which we've seen um, black women in particular rise in visibility while at the same time still experiencing discrimination and marginalization in so many ways. I suppose the, 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 the positive is that we are seeing some change. Definitely. It's been a fantastic conversation. I mean, I could, you know, I could have easily have chatted. Well, I could easily chat to you for hours, but I just wanted to finish with two things. One, two questions. One around sustainability and what that means to you and how you think that's going to evolve over the next, you know, couple of years and how you're going to, how you address that in your, um, in, 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 in L. For me, sustainability, I think it means a number of things. I mean, I think it, uh, one of the things it means is doing more with less. And, uh, you know, I think it also just means being incredibly mindful of how and why we make the choices we make in terms of our, our purchases and what we're putting our money behind. Um, and I think, uh, Yes, yeah, sustainability is definitely an, an issue that we are very aware of at Elle, and it's one it's an area that's incredibly important to us and that you'll continue to see us um, exploring, you know, over time throughout, you know, our pages and everything we do. While at the same time, very much being honest about the fact that it's a it's it's a learning curve and we're not perfect, you know, because I think it's um I think people can hold brands like ours to really high standards. And I think we're, we're learning as we go along. And I think the beauty of Elle is that we can bring so many brilliant writers and thought leaders together on our pages. And we're learning from, you know, the, these women who we're exchanging dialogue with as we go. And our parting note, <laughs> um, I want to ask you what, what luxury means to you and then what is your luxury? I mean, luxury, again, it means so many things to me. So in terms of clothing, I think it's, you know, the, the story behind the clothes and who's making it. You know, I think I, I do, I have been thinking a lot about supply chain, thanks to the influence. Uh, I have been anyway, but especially now as I've been getting to know our contributing editor, Asha Barber, uh, more and more because she is so big on um, uh, that in particular. It keeps it top of mind. But also for me, luxury just means like, time with my my kids i think as a working mom that's like that age-old dilemma you know how do you juggle the, the two and so for me luxury just feels like time with my kids in the park with like a cup of coffee or just like time on my own just to like read and think um lately because it's just been um you know such a wonderfully busy autumn uh, but yeah i think luxury oh the ultimate the ultimate luxury to me is time because i think we all feel so time poor uh, you know, in this this period of our our lives right now. Kenya Hunt, it's been fantastic chatting to you and I thank you so much for joining us on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Kenya. Thank you to our partner, Intellect Books, and thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can catch up 
on all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favourite listening platform. <laughs>